The next reading comes from <coughs> Hebrews, Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 22, and that's on page 850 of the Church Bibles. <coughs> and it's under the broad heading of the, the blood of Christ. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This reading comes from Exodus 25, verses 10 to 22. It's found, can be found on page 58 of the Bibles in the pew if you're using them. The Ark, or the Chest of the Covenant, have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high, overlaid with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold moulding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, 
with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the two cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, <coughs> overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on the top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And this, I love Australian winter. I was down south yesterday to see a newborn baby. A friend of mine had a newborn baby, and we went, it was in Austin Me, so near like Ferrul, near the south coast, and went for a surf as well. And it was just beautiful. It was cold, but it was just a beautiful, clear, clean water. Even though it was barely any waves, it was so good just to get out and be in God's creation. And this is the God we worship this morning, who makes wonderful and beautiful things. Let's pray to Him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You love us. You make it a beautiful world for us to enjoy. But nothing is better than being in your presence and experiencing your grace and your mercy as you speak to us. And we pray that you would teach us this morning as we come to your word. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. There are so many places in the world that ordinary people like you and me just can't get into unless we're deemed worthy unless we're deemed worthy. I'm a humble Qantas frequent flyer bronze member. And if you know anything about being a frequent flyer and being a bronze member, it pretty much means nothing, in other words. Other than I'm a hopeless tragic that one day hopes to be made a silver member. We get a card, but not much else. Maybe some extra baggage when you go on your long flight. I don't get any discounts, no special privileges, but perhaps the most saddest thing of all is that I don't get access to the first class lounge. That's the thing that you want most, right, when you go to the airport, is to be able to access the first class lounge. If you're a gold member, you can. If you're a silver member, you can. But if you're a bronze member, you're not deemed worthy. To be a gold member and a silver member, you have to have actually flown a lot. And you've got to earn these things called status points, which gives you enough credit to become a silver member or a gold member. But me, I'm a humble bronze member. I've never flown in my life really that much. And so therefore, I'm not qualified or deemed worthy to be a silver member or a gold member. And therefore, I don't get access to the first class lounge, unfortunately. But if you know someone who's a silver member or a gold member, or if you can find a complete stranger in the airport who is, 
you can get in with them. And I've done this. I was in Dallas airport with two other ministers of friends of mine who, one was a silver member of the Qantas Lounge, and so he took his friend in with him. And I was left outside trying to find someone who was going into the Qantas Lounge who I could be their plus one with. And I found someone and I said to him, hey, you've never met me before. You don't know who I am. But my friends are in there. I know you're a gold member. Can I come in with you as your plus one? And I promise to leave you alone after that. And so we went in together. I was his plus one. Best friends, according to the, uh, the, 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 the assistant there at the first class lounge. Otherwise, never known in my life. I entered in on the first class lounge because of his worthiness, because he was deemed worthy when I was not. We're in the middle of a series, or towards the end of a series, called Living in God's Presence. And we come to, finally, something very similar or familiar to the first class lounge, and that is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. Like the first class lounge, only those deemed worthy could enter into this place. In fact, only one person could enter into this place, the high priest, and only once a year. The first class lounge is full of luxuries like hot showers and massage rooms and free food and, and free alcohol and concierge service. And it sounds fantastic, but you've got to be a gold or silver member. You've got to actually earn that status on your own. You've got to fly enough, earn those status points. All those objects in the first class lounge reinforce that you've made it, you've earned this, this is yours. But the high priest enters the most holy place and what he sees are not objects that reinforce that he has earned such a privilege. What we see are objects that reinforce that he has graciously been invited in to experience the presence of God. As we come to the most holy place today, God makes it abundantly clear that at the center of the worshiping community, the basis of his relationship with his people is the grace of God. It's his mercy, his love to invite people in to worship him. And this morning we're going to see how this place, this holy place, this most holy place, communicates this, communicating to us the basis and the character of God's gracious relationship with these people. So firstly, the basis of God's gracious relationship. The first object we read about is the Ark of the Covenant. We read about it in verses 10 to 15. It's pretty much a small wooden box overlaid with gold like a chest. It was precious and holy. You wouldn't you couldn't touch it. If you touched it, you would die. It was that holy and that precious. And some people did die in the Old Testament because they touched that box. In 1 Chronicles 28, David calls it the footstool of God's throne. It became a symbol of God's presence. In fact, the symbol of God's presence with his people. But the ark was not an ancient talisman containing God's presence. It was simply a symbol that God was present with his people. The ark not only communicates this or in of itself, but what, contain, what is contained in the ark communicates how God is present with his people. We read in verse 16 of chapter 25, Then put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. God's presence is not in the ark, but the basis of his presence and relationship is God's law. 
Now, you might be thinking, how can the basis of God's gracious relationship be God's law? What we need to understand is that obedience to the law was not the basis of his relationship with his people, but the means to sustain this relationship. We read in Exodus 20 when Moses is given the law by God, a preamble to the Ten Commandments. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Relationship with God is not based on observing the law, but it's based on God's free decision and sovereign will to relate to his people. He was in relationship with them the moment he pulled them out of Egypt, the moment he saved them. That's when he established a relationship with Israel. And he provides the law as a means of sustaining this relationship. Now that you are out of Egypt, now you're in the land, now you are my people, this is how you relate to me. This is how you can know me. This is how you can continue to be in my presence. Here are the means by which you can relate to me. Therefore, God's law contained the ark is not a reminder of what they must do, but it's a reminder that God has already sustained this relationship with them. It's a reminder of God's incredible grace. A reminder, a constant reminder that God saved them from Egypt and now provides them a way to live in his presence. The basis of this gracious gracious relationship is God's word. It's God's promise. It's God's law. And he gives them as the means of being able to sustain this relationship. But because of sin, our relationship with God is threatened. We might have the, the means, the law, to sustain our relationship with God, but we don't have the ability to, to be able to keep the law, to do it, to, remain, to keep this relationship sustained. But the Ark of the Covenant is not the only thing we see in this most holy place, this first-class lounge. There is something else. And with that, we move on from the basis of this gracious relationship to the ongoing character of God's gracious relationship with his people. We read in verse 17, Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. wide. The same kind of dimensions or width of the actual covenant, it's the ark of the covenant itself. This cover would go on top of the ark, sealing it in a sense. But that's not all. This cover would be way more decorative than the box it was sealing. We read in verse 18, And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and a second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. Now you might be thinking, what on earth is a cherubim or a cherub? Now you also might be thinking, no, 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 I know what a cherub looks like. I've seen them before. Now, if you type into Google cherub or cherubim, you'll get pictures of like babies in nappies with wings kind of just flying around, just like, you know, doped up as high or something, like just flying around going crazy. And they might have like a bow and arrow shooting out love arrows, something like that. Now, if that's your idea of what a cherub is or cherubim is, then unfortunately, Hallmark has let you down. That's not what cherubim are. Cherubim are not babies with wings flying around the place. They're more like ex-Navy SEALs <laughs> who are now part of the President's Secret Service. That's what they are. 
They are God's bodyguards. And, and the thing is, is that if, if they're like God's last line of defense, if the most holy place represents the closest one can get to God and the cherubim were there to protect God's presence from outsiders who were unwanted or uninvited. Now you might be thinking, God doesn't need bodyguards. And you'd be right if you were thinking that. But the reality is that bodyguards don't actually simply protect their master or the king or their boss. They also represent or reflect the power and the glory and the majesty of the one they are protecting. Imagine if Donald Trump was, had a whole bunch of flying babies in the White House protecting him as his secret service. It wouldn't really go down that well, would it? It wouldn't reflect the power and the prestige of the office of President of the United States, wouldn't it? In the same way, the cherubim are God's powerful bodyguards. They reflect the glory of God and majesty. Their heads are bowed down and their wings cover the ark itself out of reverence and worship for their king and God who is from above. They guard the space where God would meet with Moses to instruct his people, the space that is above the atonement cover or otherwise called the mercy seat. You see, this, this cover, this seat, God knew that God, his people couldn't sustain their relationship with him through obedience. They deserved the full condemnation of the law. And to receive the full condemnation of the law would mean to be separated from God's good and gracious presence. It would mean to sever that relationship and that presence for all. But the thing is, God didn't establish this relationship at, for, and, on the basis of obedience, but out of love. In essence, this mercy seat concealed the condemnation of the law required of guilty people. So as God sits on the mercy seat, so to speak, he offers grace and mercy and forgiveness instead of judgment. The condemnation is concealed by the mercy seat so God can instead offer forgiveness. But this forgiveness came at a cost. Blood had to be spilt. It was sprinkled on the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant once a year by the high priest to show that God is just, that sin is costly and it needs to be dealt with. The character of mercy which so defines the relationship God has of his people leads God to being the one who ultimately sustains this relationship. God is the one who makes it happen in the first place and God is the one who ultimately sustains it through grace. But there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And all this is done so God could meet with his people. Verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. This whole system is characterized by the grace of God. Every element in this most holy place, indeed every element that we have looked at over the last seven weeks from the very entrance to the courtyard now to the very point, the Ark of the Covenant, all these furnishings are to point to God's grace that we meet before God, not 
on our own efforts, but because God graciously invites us in. Because God wants us to be in his presence. And this makes sense because this was a pattern or a shadow of what was to come. The problem with the current system in Exodus is that only the high priest was deemed worthy to enter in the most holy place. But his worthiness wasn't based off his own effort. It was a gracious invitation on God's part. And the reason why that is is because he was a sign pointing to the day when a greater high priest would come who would be deemed worthy in his own right. And by his worthiness, God's people would be brought into the most holy place in heaven by the blood of Jesus before the throne of God. Jesus is our great high priest, who through his perfect life and his sacrifice on the cross for us, brought us to God. As 1 Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We are able to enter into the full presence of God by the worthiness of Jesus. Just as I could enter into the presence of the first class lounge by the worthiness of the gold or silver member, we can enter into such a greater place, the presence of God, because Jesus has been deemed worthy. He is the basis the word which sustains our relationship with God. His life becomes our life and his death demonstrates the ongoing nature of grace and mercy that we can come before God in confession and know that we'll receive forgiveness because we have already been made right with God. We have already the grace of God, the fact that we are gathering here this morning. And this is why at the point of Jesus' death, the temple curtain into the most holy place was torn from top to bottom to symbolize that such a mode of religion that the temple, the tabernacle had become redundant, superfluous. There was no need to protect people now from God's presence because by the blood of Christ, we can now all enter in freely by Jesus' worthiness. Not our own. God's dealings with his people it's always by grace. I hope you've picked that up in this series. The one thing I hope you've picked up is that every single Old Testament passage and every single New Testament passage, God deals with his people by grace. You constantly hear people say, I don't like the Old Testament God. He's mean. He's vengeful. He punishes out of spite. No. Look deeper. The whole system of worship in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple, shows forth grace and mercy. God invites his people to worship him out of his love, his mercy, provides a way because he is gracious. We're in a culture of grace when it comes to knowing Jesus. However, we live in a graceless culture. Our culture is all about working hard to be deemed worthy. Worthiness can be earned, and we often think, this is on a, we often think about this on a massive scale. But this idea actually is reinforced every single day by a number of small things we do. I was having breakfast with a youth leader from our church, and I, I, bought, I was about to pay for breakfast, and someone else came in and picked up their takeaway coffee and handed back to him a loyalty card by which the, the barista stamped it or hole-punched it and gave it back to him. 
And then you know the whole point of the loyalty cards. You know, you get 10 hole punches or 10 stamps, and you are then rewarded with a free coffee at that point. You see, we're in a system in the most smallest of ways that reinforces that if you work hard enough, if you buy enough coffees from my cafe, I'll give you a free one. You will be deemed worthy of a free coffee. Same thing with the first class lounge, isn't it? If you fly enough with Qantas, earn those status points, you'll be deemed worthy to access of the first class lounge. I'll never be able to afford that, unfortunately. But that's the whole point. If you fly enough, you pay enough money, you can get into the first class lounge and be made a silver member on your own merit. It might seem silly. It might seem really silly. But in our daily interactions, these things reinforce in small ways that we live in a graceless culture. Now, I don't want you to think that you should throw away your loyalty card or get rid of your Qantas membership by any means. But I want you to be aware, be aware that in such a small little way, we exist in a graceless culture. We exist in a culture that will always be reinforcing to you at every single point that you can make yourself worthy, that you can be deemed worthy, that you can work as hard as you can to earn that, those benefits in the end. A grace culture says you will never be enough. It reminds us that we need mercy. We need grace. So what does a life impacted by grace look like in this graceless culture? What does a life impacted by God's grace look like? Because something has changed in us. Jesus' death and resurrection has done something in us. We have experienced unconditional love and grace. Where no one, where one who is truly righteous, Jesus, dies with us who are truly unrighteous to bring us to God. And this, in effect, changes the way we relate to not just God, but to each other as well and to the world around us. You see, a graceless culture or the graceless culture we live in makes us self-righteous and selfish people. But the, the culture of grace that God has called us into makes us humble and selfless people. And we see this played out in our relationships. The culture of grace levels all relationships, destroying any man-made basis that we might have made for any kind of relationship doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. doesn't matter if you're skilled or unskilled, successful or unsuccessful, if you're white or you're black, young or you're old. None of these things matter. The culture of grace that God has called us into reminds us that we are all sinful, no matter who we are, and that we all need the grace and mercy of God to have life and to enjoy His presence. People who live in the culture of grace, never, who have been impacted by God, never believe they are better than anyone else. They are humbled by their own need for God's mercy and for God's grace. And so they treat other people with the same kindness and compassion, knowing they need, as much as they do, the grace and the mercy of God. Do you treat those, in a worldly sense, who are beneath you? with compassion, with kindness, with grace? Or do you choose to ignore them because they're awkward? They're kind of annoying. They smell. 
They're not nice. It's difficult to have a conversation with them. Which is your excuse? Which graceless basis do you set for yourself so you don't have to show the grace of God? This is the most challenging thing for me this week as I was reflecting on this. And so perhaps we all need to do some business with God this morning because I know I had to do some this week. And it's incredible that even though we might fail to show grace and mercy to people around us, God doesn't fail to show grace to us. And we can have confidence that he will always forgive us. The culture we have been caused as the basis of all our relationships is one of humility, where we relate to the people, to all people, no matter who they are, with the same mercy and compassion God relates to us. And we as the church provide a unique oasis of grace in a desert of gracelessness in this world. It's funny, like, the tabernacle was built in the desert. Literally, a place, an oasis of God's grace with his people. In a culture that desires to be deemed worthy, to be acceptable before God, but to each other as well, we, in the, as the church, provide the space where they can find that in Jesus Christ. Grace that our Heavenly Father has showed us. And when we do this, we are the church. We reflect the culture of grace that God has called us into. But we must be on our guard because we go out into the world on Monday where you'll be constantly reinforced that you can be deemed worthy in your own right, that you can climb that ladder, you can make it on your own. The culture of grace says, no, you can't, but... Praise be to God, someone is worthy, and that is Jesus Christ. And in him, we can be truly free and know that we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Amen.